A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, a new weekly podcast on national security and foreign policy. I'm Shane Harris, your host. And if you're one of the lucky, the elite few joining me now, you are listening to the first Rational Security Podcast, our inaugural episode. You are in on the ground floor, or hopefully you're hearing this weeks from now after Rational Security has taken off and you are binge listening to catch up with all of your friends so that you can be cool and informed. We've got a great show for you today, but first, the basics. What is a Rational Security and who am I? Uh, well, as I said at the top, I'm Shane Harris. I'm a journalist in Washington, D.C. I've written two books on national security, including one called The Watchers, The Rise of America's Surveillance State, and most recently, At War, The Rise of the Military Internet Complex. I'm big into the rise of things, apparently. I'm currently a senior correspondent at the Daily Beast, where I cover the U.S. intelligence community and assorted spooky topics, and I am also a fellow at New America. But more importantly, I am one-third of this merry, rational bunch. I'm joined today, as I will be every week, by my friends Tamara Kaufman-Wittis, who is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and the director of the Center for Middle East Policy. She served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs from November of 2009 to January 2012, coordinating U.S. policy on democracy and human rights in the Middle East for the State Department. And Tamara also oversaw the Middle East Partnership Initiative and served as Deputy Special Coordinator for Middle East Transitions. She was central to organizing the U.S. government's response to the Arab Awakening, which we will talk more about today. Hi, Tamara. Hi. That's because I'm more into the fall of things. Yes. I am the rise. You're the fall. Exactly. Uh, and the third member of Rational Security is Benjamin Wittes. No relation. <clears throat> well, we'll get Excuse to that. Excuse me. <laughs> Clever listeners will detect the similarity in the last names of Wittes and Kaufman Wittes. Ben also is a senior fellow at Brookings in Governance Studies, uh, and he's also co-founder and editor-in-chief of the Lawfare blog, which, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably read on a regular basis. Ben's a member of the Hoover Institution's Task Force on National Security and Law, He's the author of many books, more than me, uh, including Law and the Long War, The Future of Justice in the Age of Terror, Detention and Denial, The Case for Candor after Guantanamo, and the forthcoming The Future of Violence, Robots and Germs, Hackers and Drones, Confronting a New Age of Threat, which is also the longest book title of 2015, which he co-wrote with the awesome Gabriella Bloom. But of course, Ben's most impressive achievement is that he somehow persuaded Tamara to marry him. Well done, Ben. Thank you. I don't know how you did it. I'm not sure I do either. <clears throat> the nuances escape me. It's like Section 702. It's just, <laughs> I, I know it's he opaque. gets the congratulations, so I get the good luck, right? Yeah, good luck. Yeah. Good luck to you, exactly. Condolences. <laughs> Condolences. You have my, you have my deepest sympathies. So can we have an, like an agreement that that's the only time we're ever going to do introductions? Yes, that's exactly right. So when you listen to episode two, if you don't know who the hell we are, then go back and listen to episode one. Right. Yeah, so, tough luck. Yeah, this will not be, the intros in the future will not be this long and ponderous as much as, you know, Ben would love for me to recite all the books, the other books that he's written. Just to make the rest of us feel inadequate. Inadequate. The titles are also very long, very long titles. They are. 
star or They're, the assessment. <laughs> okay, that was short. That was also your first book. There, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so just to give a little background for our first show, um, why are we here? Uh, why are you here? We all decided to do this podcast for a couple of reasons. A, we really love podcasts. We're sort of junkies for them. At least mm. Ben and I are. I admit I have never listened to Serial. You oh my can god! Hate me if you want to. Oh my god! We're gonna get such negative comments. So you know, tomorrow just likes chat and likes Ben. Okay, and likes me. I can't say no to you. That's right. Well, you shouldn't. It's <laughs> good. This is gonna be fun. See, exactly. Don't say no. It's like improv. Uh, we really love podcasts. Ben and I really like podcasts anyway. But we do, all three of us, spend our days reporting on, writing about, analyzing, and just generally stewing in issues of national security and foreign policy. And we love talking about this stuff with each other, with colleagues, with friends. It is literally the conversation we're having over drinks or the dinner table in Washington where we're recording this. Uh, so we thought, why not make a podcast of it? Uh, we're also very big fans of conversational podcasts. So on national security, you're not going to find a lot of special effects or bells and whistles. This is going to be straight talk, and we're going to have a lot of fun with it and hope that you will too. So the show will be divided every week into two rounds. Round one, we are calling Wordplay. Each of us has brought an item of text from the week's news. It could be an article we read, an op-ed, a new study, some piece of proposed legislation. We'll chew that over, unpack it, put it in the metaphor blender, break it down. Round two, we are calling object lesson. And this is really kind of like a grown-up show-and-tell. Um, each of us has brought in an object. They're sitting here in front of us, uh, which we will put on our website so you can see them too. An object, a physical thing that connects to some theme of national security or foreign policy, sometimes rather broadly. So with that, we're going to start round one. Tamara, wordplay. What is your wordplay this week? Uh, my wordplay, I decided to um, start off because it was vacation and I was catching up on my entertainment news. Um, I brought an op-ed by a celebrity. Uh, and, uh, and sadly, she's a celebrity not just because of her profession, which is noble, uh, but also because of her spouse, who is gorgeous and famous, George oh, yeah. Clooney. And so, of course, I'm talking about the newly married Amal Clooney, famous international human rights lawyer. Is she really a celebrity human rights lawyer? Uh, she's, she's pretty well known in the field, partly for being glamorous okay. and gorgeous, she is as that. well as for being a human rights lawyer. All right. Um, but she uh, wrote an op-ed that was published yesterday uh, actually in, uh, I believe, in Huffington Post, uh, along with her colleague, Mark Wasuf. And they're writing about uh, their client, Mohammed uh, Fahmi, who is one of the three Al Jazeera journalists uh, who are imprisoned in Egypt. Uh, they've been in jail for just over a year, uh, convicted on charges uh, of terrorism, support for terrorism, after, I think, what was one of the most bizarre trials uh, ever chronicled, certainly in the international media, um, to be held in Egyptian courts. This is a, a trial of three journalists, a uh, Canadian, Mohammed Fahmi, an Australian, Peter Grast, and an Egyptian, uh, an Egyptian, Bahar Mohammed, who um, had been in the country less than a week in their role as Al Jazeera journalists. Uh, and... Uh, were arrested and accused of supporting the Muslim Brotherhood, being part of a secret cell. The trial um, stretched over weeks. The, the judge wore sunglasses throughout the proceedings, refused to take them off. 
the evidence presented for these allegations included uh, music videos. They included um, uh, emails from uh, one of the journalists home to their parents. It included a video of a goat. Anything and everything except any direct ev evidence linking any of these gentlemen uh, to acts of violence. And Amal Clooney and uh, her co-counsel, Mark Wassef, were writing uh, in the wake of a, an appeal hearing uh, for these three defendants in which they were granted a new trial, but they were not granted bail, uh, they were not granted any reduction in sentence, and they have been in jail in Egypt now for over a year. Uh, she's arguing, uh, quite understandably, that um, her client should be released, not retried, that all of the um, defects of the Egyptian judicial process that were evident in the original trial are still very much in evidence in Egypt today, and that there's no reason to believe that a retrial is going to be any fairer than the original. Uh, this is uh, news not only because uh, the retrial was just granted, but also because of a story that came out uh, just a few days ago that Amal Clooney, in her role as an international human rights lawyer, uh, worked with the International Bar Association on a big report about judicial reform in Egypt and the need right. for judicial reform. Uh, and uh, the news broke this, this past week that when this report came out uh, about a year ago, she was warned by the Egyptian government not to travel to Egypt or she might risk arrest. And, uh, and so now that she is not only an eminent lawyer, right. but also the wife of George Clooney, this is getting a lot of play. Yeah, and, and it would be hard to believe she'd be arrested. Well, I don't know. <clears throat> arresting George Clooney's wife is probably more problematic for the Egyptians than arresting her, I would think. Uh, and and apparently more problematic for the Egyptians than arresting three Al Jazeera journalists. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe they would arrest her and put her on trial with a goat. Exactly. So I, but I have a question. On the theory that this actually really isn't about Al Jazeera journalists being terrorists, and that it actually has something to do with Egyptian Qatari relations, what is this really about? Right. Well, great question. What is such a bizarre trial and a bizarre set of charges but, you know, actually about? The regime presumably is not doing this, um, you know, to make themselves look goofy in the international arena. There's some strategic calculation behind it. And it has this sort of weirdly North Korean feel mm -hmm. where you can't quite figure out what they think they're doing. Um, and so I'm like, what do they think they're doing? You know, I could impose a logic on it. And I think you could certainly make an argument from where we sit today that having these three gentlemen who worked for Al Jazeera in jail gives the Egyptian government leverage over the Guttery government, which owns Al Jazeera. So you could make a logical or a rational political argument about it. But we also have to take into account that in many ways, the atmosphere inside Egypt over the last three years has not necessarily been rational in a way you or I would recognize. It's been uh, incredibly nationalistic, incredibly paranoid, incredibly xenophobic. Uh, and yes, there have been tensions between uh, the uh, Egyptian military, which staged a coup a year and a half ago, and, and which now runs the country uh, through uh, President el-Sisi, the former general. Um, 
between them and, and the Gadari government, which supported the Muslim Brotherhood previously in power in Egypt. So yeah, there is real political tension there, but that tension is magnified a hundred times by this crazy atmosphere. In fact, I've even heard Egyptian friends of mine say in the last few months, wow, are we in danger of turning into North Korea? So it's a joke to you, but inside Egypt, it doesn't feel that far-fetched. So there are people in Egypt who are looking at this and they think it's as ridiculous as we do sitting here looking at the trial. Well, it's it's pretty Alice in Wonderland yeah. for a lot of them. I mean, you know, public protests have been banned. The media is just a festival of conspiracy theories and glorification of the dear leader. Um, you know, chocolate shops are selling chocolates with images of President Sisi on them. Uh, glorifying billboards are all over the country. It, it's starting to feel North Korea-esque to yeah. some Egyptians. And yet they have not taken my suggestion for a title for General Sisi. Some time back I suggested on Twitter that that he adopt the title General Sisi Mo. <laughs> and to my surprise... Shock, he didn't this, take it. This was not taken. I also proposed a, a campaign theme song for him, uh, which I'll play a little snippet of right now. <laughs> Amazingly, they did not. Take What's not to love about that? Yeah, I thought it was really so, an idea. Of priorities are very. CCMO is not the branding they're going for. I, I don't get why, but here we have it. You know, one thing that struck me as a, as a journalist watching this too is I feel like. The Al Jazeera journalist case has certainly become a bit of a, not a cause celeb, but it's a concern for journalists. But I'm surprised that it's not been elevated more. I mean, there are other, you know, journalists, American journalists who are kind of in the hot seat. I mean, Jim Risen is battling to keep his source secret and not have to testify about it. The Justice Department's been sort of pushing on that. It's not clear whether he'll be forced to testify about some things, but not everything. But I'm kind of surprised that the Al Jazeera journalist case has not become more of I don't know, an issue among reporters. And, and I'm kind of, I'd be curious to know, like, why you guys, and, and Ben, you were a journalist as well. I mean, like, why? The fraud journalist. <laughs> exactly. First uh, they kicked him to the editorial page, and then they kicked him. Speaking out. of the fall. Uh, <laughs> but, like, I don't understand. Is it because they're, it's Al Jazeera, and American journalists kind of think, oh, it's Al Jazeera is sort of the mouthpiece for the Qatari regime, and we don't like it gutter that much, and it's a regional issue, but, it just strikes me that, I mean, this is, I mean, this could be, what if this were an American journalist being held in Egyptian court? What if it were a European journalist? I mean, there's, I mean, not to put like, and view press freedom as the only concern here, but I'm, it's no, I, some surprise. I, I do think it's partly because Jazeera is somehow less than entirely reputable. And there, there is, um, while many of the journalists who work for Al Jazeera are doing something we would all recognize as journalism, there is a, J Jazeera is at the same time a strategic act of state by the Qatari regime, uh, which is, you know, like the Egyptian regime, an authoritarian, um, you know, entity that's you know, uses its power in sometimes ugly ways, and Jazeera is, among other things, uh, 
a sometimes attractive and sometimes really unattractive expression of that. And so I do think that there's some feeling that when you come down on Jazeera, it's a little bit different from coming down on the New York Times. Uh, and that said, the individual journalists were there doing journalism. You know, I think I, I think you're right to make that point, but I also think that this case gets less attention here in the United States than it gets outside the U.S. Uh, in Britain, um, the whole BBC is behind these guys. Mm -hmm. um, Peter Grest is an Australian national. Mohammed Fahmy is a Canadian national. Bahar Mohammed is an Egyptian national. The reason it doesn't get more coverage here, quite frankly, is because there are no Americans involved. Right. But the um, all three of these guys worked for other outlets before they worked for Jazeera. They, you know, they've got track records, particularly Peter Grast, who worked with a lot of Western journalists in hotspots around the Middle East, and so has a professional network of contacts who are all very supportive uh, of him and very upset about. Um, the fact that that uh, the Egyptian government has been so resistant to international pressure in this case, and they've heard a lot, the Egyptian government has heard a lot about this case, not only from the countries uh, of citizenship of the defendants, but even from the U.S. government. And this has been reported that, uh, and I think even President Obama has publicly mentioned the Al Jazeera journalists. What's interesting to me uh, as somebody who's been focused more on Egyptian politics, is that the Al Jazeera journalists get so much more attention than the 20,000 other people who have been arrested in Egypt since the military coup. There were a dozen um, young secular activists who were uh, convicted of violating this draconian new law that essentially bans public protest. They just had an appeal hearing, and their sentence was reduced from three years to two years. That got barely any coverage, but the Al Jazeera journalists, because of their Western networks, are getting more. So it helps to have a high-profile lawyer to be not Egyptian, possibly in this case. Well, I mean, one of them is Egyptian, but like, so the cumulative effect of the kind of the celebrity aspects and the brand and all that oh, is helping them in ways that just simply wouldn't help an ordinary it, Egyptian journalist. It definitely helps to uh, have your lawyer married to George Clooney. Yeah, yeah. I should hire to you know. Do some law for me. <laughs> Definitely. I should go commit a crime you quickly. A house I did. I did. Do the closing. Oh, she could. She probably got it done a lot faster too. No, that's, <laughs> no. If my, my, my broker is listening, you were great. Um, and if you are listening, that's surprising. This didn't come up when we knew each other. All right. Um, so Ben, your wordplay. My wordplay. Uh, I have spent the last several weeks reading uh, the Titanic. SSCI, Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Good, report. good metaphor for that. Report. It could sink the Titanic. <laughs> oh my God. I just the weight it of sank the me. Um, so, it, the minority Republican response to it, and the CIA's response to it, um, which uh, their giant study of the CIA's uh, so called RDI program, which RDI stands for Rendition detention and interrogation. So that's one possible uh, metaphor, euphemism. Another one is the, the enhanced interrogation techniques, the EITs. And if you don't like those, you can go with uh, the torture report. Um, so this is uh, actually occupied a huge amount of time just to get through it. It's about a thousand pages. And that's just the executive summary. 
Um, the actual report itself is is more like 600, uh, 6,000 pages and has yet to be declassified. And this has been uh, the subject of, uh, you know, an enormous amount of uh, media coverage and discussion. I think almost all of it from people who had not actually read it, just because having actually done read it, uh, it's a very time-consuming thing to read, which uh, I think probably um, most people who were writing about it were scanning bits and pieces of it. It's, um, it's a, I will just say, as somebody who's tried, it's a slog. It's a slog. And when the committee put out the report, they very helpfully put a two-page, you know, bullet point of the most shocking moments of the report, which they gave to reporters that morning. But now, if only George R. R. Martin would do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so I, I haven't even tried Game of Thrones, but this was um, maybe Game of Groans. Yes. Um, oh, well, um, this certainly is. Um, <laughs> so. Um, I guess I want to make uh, five points about it. The first is that nothing that you've read about it overstates how shocking the most shocking gross stuff in it is. And, you know, where, where the CIA is most vulnerable and the committee seems to be strongest is just in the argument that the program in practice was quite a bit more brutal than the program in the sort of antiseptic, relatively antiseptic uh, legal opinions and transmissions to uh, Congress and the American people. Um, I think the only thing you can really say in the agency's defense on that score is that almost all of the brutalities that are described in the committee's report, and the committee is not entirely straightforward about this, um, took place in the immediate few months in which the program is getting started. And so they clearly had some pretty awful growing pains and a lot of bad things happened. And largely in one site, too. One site. Yeah. Um, although there was a lot of bad stuff going on and right. there was some bad personnel involved and one detainee died and there was, you know, one detention facility, as you just mentioned, was kept in complete darkness for 24 hours for months. And It was Afghanistan, I think. Yeah, it was the, 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 the so-called salt pit. Or cobalt in the um, report, yeah. And the, you know, nobody in... Langley seemed aware of what was going on there because it was kind of a facility for mid-level people and that's not really where they were focused. So, I mean, I think the only thing you can say in the agency's defense on this is that standing up such a program is very difficult and they did seem to clean up their act over after sort of the first eight months or so of the program's operations, that's kind of when it began to function sort of more like the way the documents describe. So point number two is that I think where the committee is a lot less effective, um, no pun intended, is in its discussion of the program's effectiveness. And here the committee really bends over backwards to argue that there was nothing good or valuable intelligence-wise that came out of this program. And I think uh, the minority members of the committee, the Republicans and the CIA, have, uh, if not the better of the argument that, in fact, the program was effective, certainly the better of the argument that it's not really knowable 
whether the, the specific techniques, that a lot of valuable information came out of the program in periods in which these brutal tactics were used. And therefore, you can't really say whether that would have been available had those techniques not been used. Well, but doesn't that just go to the point that the majority has to argue a counterfactual that's extraordinarily difficult to prove under the best of circumstances, and these are not the best of circumstances? Right. Well, so that, but that raises the question of why they bother to make the argument. I mean, it seems to me their, yeah. their presentation would have been a lot stronger and a lot more persuasive had they simply said, there's, this was really horrible, and the CIA can't show evidence that it was really necessary. Mm -hmm. And they, they go that extra step and say, every single example that the CIA presents, uh, that valuable information was obtained is incorrect. And they're not persuasive on that point. And the agency comes back and, and really shows some, in some significant ways that, that they have that the committee went further, I think, than the facts will allow. I, I think it's actually safe to say that the CIA on this one outfoxed the committee in the presentation of the report. And here's why I think that. The agency had advanced access to the report. They knew what it was going to say. You know, in my reporting was lots of people were talking to folks who, you know, were clearly, they knew it was going to be in there. And they kind of knew the way that even the committee was going to line it up with these 1 through 20 examples and all that. And what was interesting to me is that the director of the CIA, John Brennan, the people around him, chose to kind of go with this, this not defense exactly, but this, well, we can't know for sure whether it did or it didn't. All we know is that people who were subjected to EITs as well as other things too gave up information. Absent the EITs, would they have been able to, would they have provided that? We don't know. But the surrogates that the FBI was, or the CIA could line up with former director Tennant mm -hmm. and Mike Hayden in this kind of operation that was engineered by a guy named Bill Harlow, who used to be Hayden or uh, Tennant's uh, sort of right-hand man and press guy, they let them come out and make the argument that was much more forceful that, yes, this worked, yes, we should have done it, and in all of the ways in defending the report from the committee that the CIA didn't want to do, but in a weird way, it didn't have to, right. because they already knew what they were going to say, and they knew that these surrogates were going to be there. Right. So this brings me to point number three, which is that the, the most explosive allegation in the report is not the brutality of the program, which we largely knew, um, although the details of which are certainly shocking. And it's not really the allegation that the program was ineffective. John McCain's been arguing that. Lots of people have been arguing that for years. The most explosive component of the of, of this SSCI report is the contention that Congress was systematically misled about effectiveness and other things from the beginning of the program. And whether you think this is right or not, and this is my big takeaway from, from reading the thing, depends almost entirely on what you think of the effectiveness claims one way or the other. Because nearly all of the supposed misstatements and misleading of the committee um, and the executive branch and all the other actors who were supposedly misled are, mi are supposed misstatements about the effectiveness of the program. And so, and the committee methodically details every single one of them. But if you believe that the program was more effective than the committee is acknowledging, 
those all fall like dominoes because they're all there it's the same lie over and over and over again and if you don't think it was a lie or a misrepresentation or an error of fact the one time a lot of those dominoes don't actually fall so i think all of that is i, I i'm going to actually stop with three of the five points but all of that is a very long way of saying that despite 6000 classified pages and 1000 unclassified pages i think very few of the issues that have riled the public in an almost sort of alger hiss like way it's the issue that will not die 13 years after 911 we are still arguing about techniques that were ended more than a decade ago i don't think this report is actually going to settle anything in the minds of very many people um and so i'm i i wish i could say otherwise but i think it's this is actually kind of turning into an almost alger hiss or rosenberg like generational debate wow it's interesting that you end with that with that analogy to alger hiss or the rosenbergs which is so polarizing right you're essentially saying no one's mind was changed everybody comes out of this thinking what they thought when they went into it and feels vindicated right but it i mean look i'm an outsider you two have spent a lot more time looking at the details of this all along the way but as an outsider i saw this as just part of our big national um self purge mm -hmm. right that we were continually trying to demonstrate to ourselves that we are in the post post 911 era that we've come out the other side of some horrible experience and that's part of why Obama's appeal to close the book on a chapter defined by two wars in the Middle East yet it why that's got so much resonance for so many Americans and this report is just another piece of the theater of that process so that what it says and who's convinced by it is immaterial the fact that's important is that we've done it and now we can move on and uh and let the ideologues on either side think what they thought before we don't care we're ready to talk about something else to me that was what was really striking about the way this played out yeah and that was actually that that was the CIA's off the record position it was their psychological state of mind with this i mean i think that john brennan is very much of the mind like you just said where he just wants to get this over with and you know the the thing that i kept hearing from people uh at the agency in the run up to it was how many days do you think it'll stay in the news uh -huh. like they wanted me to say well how is it a one day story is it a two day story and I, and i thought to myself well it's probably a in so far as there'll be two days of big stories but the story it's, it's never really going to end i mean this is why i mean I mean, I agree with what you said, Ben, about sort of the analogy to the, the, the story that won't die is, you know, nobody's mind gets made up by, by this report. Um, I didn't feel like the CIA was trying to persuade anyone either. They just wanted to sort of get through it, but that just seems like that's never going to happen. I mean, we're never going to get to the point where we, we couldn't, we can't even decide nationally whether we want to call it torture. I mean, it took Obama saying we tortured some folks, which was kind of, it felt oh. almost half-hearted even to call it torture. And I mean, you know, I, I have to just say, this is why, I mean, I, I really wish it would die because like, there is no 
topic. There's only one topic that I, in, in all of my years, 15 years now writing about national security, I hate writing about. It's this one. Why? I just hate writing about this program because I'm so with you. It, I just can't stand it. It's it's there. It, it's it's so dark. There's no there's nothing redeeming about it. There are just there are no. The minute you think you found an answer, there is just, there is some impassioned answer at the other side of it. You know, it just keeps going on and on. But at the end of the day, it's just. It's just devoid of any light at all. I get so incredibly upset when I read it. Um, I, I don't like the way that it makes me wrestle, you know, moral, uh, morally wrestle with things. Which is going to sound like I'm saying I'm trying to find some easy way out for you know this this problem is too hard. But I, it just makes me even like consider things about myself that I don't like thinking about. And nobody comes away clean in it. And it just every time I feel every time I've reported on it, I come away feeling completely unsatisfied. Like. I said I, I solved nothing. I settled nothing. I decided nothing. Which is not to say that I supported the program. I personally don't, and I don't think that we should have done it on a personal level. But I just kind of come out feeling exhausted and gross every wow. time I'm writing about it. So I hate it, writing about it. <laughs> exhausted and gross to me is very telling, and you know, it. I think both of you are reinforcing my sense that the post facto analysis is useless in terms of policy prescription. Um, it's and maybe it's not even useful in societal cleansing or purging if we all come out of it feeling gross. Um, but if, as you say, you know, for every uh, argument there's a counter argument, and at the end of all this exhaustive reporting there is nothing but uncertainty and grossness, then to me that only reinforces that this is just not worth doing. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think, you know, I, I, I'm with you on that. Yeah. You know, I think everybody is, with the exception of the, the sort of hardest core defenders of the program, I don't think anybody wants anything like it to exist anymore. Yeah. I think it's just a, it's a, it's a, a, and I don't think today the CIA would willingly undertake this, a program like this again. I, I agree. I think, I mean... Number one, I think some of those surrogates that the CIA had out there after the release were making the ticking bomb arguments and saying, well, we always need to have this in our hip pocket. We don't want to rule it out. I find that troubling. Um, but the other component, and getting back to the sort of national purge, I apologize for my obsession, is the normative component. Um, because to the extent that this does serve to either establish or call into question our norms as a society around this set of issues, or fail to clarify our norms, then it leaves us open to screwing things up again. And I, I don't like that. So if the goal of doing this was to resolve something, even if we don't resolve what happened and what that meant, I would like to resolve what we do from here. I'm not comfortable just letting it sit until the next time we have a crisis. Well, so I, th I think by and large, the issue is resolved, at least with regard to Al-Qaeda. You know, the, the circumstances that led to this program were a circumstance in which we were hit very hard and we had very little to no intelligence about the senior levels of Al-Qaeda, and then we started capturing them. And so you had this question where we had the sort of the only window we had in was human intelligence from detainees and the pressure to get as much as you could was enormous. Now we have a different picture, which is we know a lot about Al-Qaeda. We have a lot of sources. We have a lot of ways in. 
and we're not starting from a base knowledge that's as close to zero as it was. And so it's very hard for me to imagine this situation arising again about an Al-Qaeda-linked group. I think if you imagine the sort of shining path or something hits us very hard out of left field, that's really where you would have pressure, you know, to all of a sudden get everything you can. And that's, and I do, I do agree. We've left that question in a formal sense unanswered. So as we're talking about this, this is actually appropriate. Um, this news has just come across the wire that Dianne Feinstein, the outgoing chairperson of the Senate Intelligence Committee, wants to introduce legislation at the beginning of the next Congress, which starts very soon, right before this will go online, to put into law many of the measures that Obama established by executive order in 2009, prohibiting enhanced interrogation techniques by the entire intelligence community. So, wants to put into law that well, we banned she, And she's proposed this in the past. In fact, she proposed it in Congress, I believe, uh, passed this uh, a version of this law just as Bush was going out of office and he vetoed it. And so Obama's executive order was largely a executive-level implementation of what Feinstein had previously proposed legislatively, and she said in her transmission of the SSCI report that it wasn't good enough because another president could come along and change it. And so here she's reintroducing basically her idea of, you know, legislatively requiring compliance with the Army Field Manual. So would the Republicans pass this bill? Uh, you know, it's, I mean, I think this is one of a number of national security issues that I'm sure we will be talking about in the coming weeks and months where at least Senate Republicans are going to split. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I think one of the reasons why Feinstein is moving forward with this is because she knows that, and it's a great way to put the Republicans in a corner. Totally. No, absolutely. I mean, vote for torture is basically, or, or vote for possible torture one day. Right, although I, mean, I, I do think in the weird world of Republican politics, this actually plays the other direction. You know, if you remember in the 2012 Republican primary campaigns, the candidates were tripping over each other to, you know, endorse waterboarding, um, and endorse waterboarding each other. I mean, you know, the, the, the sort of enthusiasm. It's the for, new primary. It is. <laughs> you know, can he take the water? Um, and so, you know, there was a, I, I, I mean, I do think, you know, what sounds to a lot of liberal ears like, oh my God, will the Republicans stand in the way? For some Republicans, you know, showing that you're, you know, willing to not just do waterboarding, but hold them down yourself right. is going to be a, you know, a chest thumping um, primary thing. And so I, I would not be surprised if the parties cheerfully agreed to disagree with John McCain as the sort of um, uh, dissenting Republican. So the last question on this is, is, is the issue of torture still alive uh, in 2016 in the... Uh presidential campaign? Will when candidates be asked to approve or disapprove of these techniques? Will that be brought up again in the campaign? In the Republican primary campaign, it will come up often, and there will be rightward pressure on candidates to uh, denounce, uh, you know, traditional interrogation and embrace sort of more enhanced, more torturous interrogation techniques. And there will be 
also pressure you know to denounce the use of the criminal justice system as the principal mode of detaining people yeah. the democratic party will not have any such debate um you know whether you're dealing with hillary clinton or somebody to the left of her you're going to have an agreement that the criminal justice system is the more attractive venue for dealing with these people yeah look i'll just say that um it's almost two years between now and the next presidential election, and um, and we've seen a, a national security establishment and national security debate that said, uh, we've dealt with the terrorist threat, we can go on to other things. Now swinging back around and saying <clears throat> ISIS is the greatest, you know, th uh, or most urgent threat to American national security, and we find ourselves militarily engaged in a war on terrorism again. I don't know. Uh, how this could play out over the next couple of years, so I'm not going to make any predictions. Yeah, I can imagine the one scenario that starts to befuddle Democrats, which is um, the last remaining American hostage held by ISIS has been shown in a YouTube video and is about to be beheaded. By the way, it is a woman, um, and uh, we have an ISIS member in our custody, and do we torture him to find out where she is? I mean, yeah, I, that's, I mean, that's one where I could see Democrats yeah. not being able to walk away. Right, yeah. and you, you have a lot of presentations of facts that you can make that influence the discussion um, and you know probably rightly so okay so my wordplay uh, comes to us courtesy of the US Treasury Department uh, so, yeah, it's, so exciting it's so exciting it's a tax code um, no this is a so on Friday was it was it last Thursday or Friday I can't remember it was it, yeah, it was Friday it was Friday because it was just after the New Year holiday um, the Treasury Department decided to impose sanctions against the government of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, a.k.a. North Korea. Uh, and I'll read from the response here, which is very interesting. They're really sorry. In response to North Korea's numerous provocations, particularly the recent cyber attack targeting Sony Pictures Entertainment and threats against movie theaters and moviegoers, President Obama today signed an executive order authorizing the imposition of sanctions. And it goes on to name three North Korean groups uh, and ten individuals. Best as we can tell, uh, and according to senior administration officials, none of whom had anything at all to do with the attack or the hack on Sony, which the president has publicly blamed directly on North Korea, uh, although offering evidence that a number of cybersecurity experts, uh, and I'll say myself too, find kind of thin and circumstantial, and it's hard to believe that there's not more evidence that the FBI has, including, one would hope, a smoking gun uh, if you're going to let the President of the United States go on national television and accuse another country of attacking a uh, U.S. company. Um, but what I just found really interesting about this was, well, two things. One, we were all sort of waiting to see what was going to be the quote-unquote proportional response that Obama was going to take um, against North Korea for um, hacking Sony. Um, allegedly in response and outrage to this film, the interview, which I watched, yeah, it's pretty stupid, but it's pretty funny. Um, but I could see why... Kim Jong-un would be upset by this movie, which makes him out to be kind of like a buffoon and a character, you know, a clown, and he knows he's a buffoon and an idiot, and there's lots of daddy issues in the movie. Although I will say Team America, which is a movie about his father by the South Park guys. Much worse. Much worse and so much funnier, by the yes, way. Much, much and daddy funnier. apparently just, like, took it on the chin. I mean, you know, he liked movies. I, he should <laughs> be flattered. They were puppets in that movie. They yeah. were puppets. And also, like, you know, four and he had people. a great song. 
He did have a he's so ronry. And and he got to have Hans Blix eaten by sharks. Yes. Oh my god. Lest we forget. So good. <laughs> Hans Bricks. <laughs> That's what his name was. Um but no, but I thought that you know this it just struck me as such an interesting thing. Okay, so we're going to have some proportional response to hacking Sony over the interview, which if that's even really what the hackers were about, and there's still a lot of smoke around this. But so two days after, one day after that speech on December 19th that Obama gives, suddenly the Internet goes out in North Korea, which is sort of like, you know, knocking the Internet out in an office building. There's like, you know, 400 computers in North Korea that have the Internet. I'm only You have to be a four-star general. Yeah, you basically have to be, exactly. So it's only the elites, right? It's only the elites, the government, et cetera, et cetera, which seemed to be very much a proportional response. There would basically be no... About the size of Sony. Right, exactly, exactly, <laughs> that's right. But the emails are much less interesting. <laughs> Way less interesting. They're not about George Clooney or his lovely wife. Um, so it wasn't clear whether the United States did that, etc. Then the sanctions list comes out. But in the briefing that the, the, the Treasury Department did with reporters, which I participated in, they kept repeating over and over again, these, are, these individuals were in no way connected to the Sony hack. So I guess the question that, I mean, I had, and it wasn't really sufficiently answered for me in the briefing, was why these 10 individuals? Is it because, and I should emphasize these people were members of, uh, there's Government of North Korea Workers Party, is in here, um, the equivalent of their intelligence bureau is on this list, a company called Comid, which is the Korea Mining and Development Trading Company, which is basically the largest arms dealer in North Korea. All these sort of, as we would see them, bad North Korean actors who were clearly, in our minds, sanctionable. Why didn't we sanction them until now? Why are we sanctioning them now when they had nothing to do with the North Korea hack? And will we be going after other people who we think were involved in the North Korea hack publicly the way that we've indicted Chinese military officials for hacking into U.S. corporations. So I, I just found it rather perplexing. I was like, okay, so because this again, this is the language in response to the numerous provocations, particularly the recent cyber attack. It sort of was kind of like, it felt like it was sort of piling on a bit. We've gone um, on sanctions as a government and more broadly internationally from broad brush sanctions, universal sanctions that affect an entire economy and an entire society to more and more and more narrowly targeted sanctions. And this started actually um, around after 9-11, but really um, with the beginning of the Iraq War when we realized the incredible damage, um, much of which was reported before, that a decade of, of broad sanctions had done to the Iraqi economy, Iraqi society, the Iraqi healthcare system, and we were then responsible for picking up the pieces, we started targeting sanctions more narrowly. And now we have all these wonderful tools, which despite my crap about the Treasury Department, um, they're actually the sexy place for economic statecraft yeah. because they have all these sophisticated ways of targeting. And and uh, and so now this is the first wave. Whenever we want to do something, we do targeted sanctions. But they're not always a great tool. This is a case where we're not trying to coerce or deter. We're just trying to punish. What does this accomplish? No, I, I, so I think your, your point earlier is exactly the right one, which is that this is not specifically in response to the Sony hack. It is triggered by the Sony mm-hmm. hack. But the, it's a perception that the DPRK has gone too far a bunch of times and so oh yeah, building a nuclear weapon was not bad enough, but hacking Sony. <laughs> right. I mean, like they've gone they've gone way too far a bunch of times, and we got to push back against them now. 
And here's the thing, you don't want to specifically tell them, now whatever you do, don't hack Sony again. And yeah. going for the individuals involved in that hack um, are, uh, you know, sends the, a, a very specific message about the hack. What you want to do, I think this is the calculation, is, is say, stop behaving really badly and aggressively, and you want to send that message to the regime itself. And so whether that's effective or not, I don't know. But I will say this. the um, In response to our early wave of Russia sanctions, the Russians imposed reciprocal sanctions on a bunch of our people. Mm -hmm. And just like this, they chose a bunch of people who had nothing to do with Ukraine or any of our stuff. They had to do with Guantanamo. Um, and they sanctioned one of the judges who, you know, put a travel ban on, I think it was Judge Green or something, you know, a whole bunch of people who had stuff to do with Guantanamo, uh, Jim Haynes and, you know, and they'd left me out, by the way, which I was really offended Aww. by. I thought I had much more to do with legitimizing Guantanamo than a lot of those people. Well, and, that's certainly what some folks would argue. Yeah. And so Did you I, feel runery? I, I felt runery <laughs> and I felt left out. And so, but my point is, there is a bit of a tradition of, again, about targeted sanctions being about what message you want to send, not about the specific people who, who did the thing that you would be responding to. I, I would agree that, but I just don't think that's a tradition, or rather, it's a tradition of very recent vintage. <laughs> um, you know, 20 years ago, nobody did sanctions this way. Uh, and, and if the goal, I mean, it's, it's an interesting idea that perhaps what the administration was trying to do here was broader deterrence. But I would argue if the goal was broader deterrence, sanctions that are targeted as narrowly as these aren't going to have any broader deterrent effect. You want to have broader deterrence on the North Korean regime. You have to target the North Korean regime broadly. Yeah. And it's um, been pretty damn targeted. Yeah. And I, mean, who's, I mean, my question was, who the hell is left to sanction? Well, and that's a good point. Maybe there really wasn't yeah. anyone else left at a broad level. Okay, so now we're going to move on to round two, object lesson. This is where we each have brought in a physical object that connects in some way to national security or foreign policy. Ben, what did you bring for the class today? So I brought a medal that I was given at the National Security Agency on September 18th of now, last year, that's, uh, for purposes of this conversation, it's important, almost four months Ooh. ago. And I was given this medal. It's actually quite beautiful. We'll have a picture of it up on our show page. Um, uh, I was given this medal because I was the Constitution Day speaker at the National Security Agency. And I was actually, uh, I'm going to make fun of them a little bit now, but the truth of the matter is I was very moved to be there, and I really uh, enjoyed talking to that audience um, with whom, you know, it will not surprise Glenn Greenwald, I actually identify a fair bit. Um, you are the greatest apologist for the NSA I, writing in I America today. I am one today. of the NSA's public apologists, and I'm proud to be one. Uh, and so I was very proud to be the Constitution Day speaker at NSA, and the only thing I asked of them was that they release the audio to me so that I could run it on the Lawfare podcast. And... So here's the thing. I am not cleared to receive classified information. I am, um, nothing that I said was remotely classified. 
Uh, and this is an audience of people who are cleared at the very highest levels and do signals intelligence for a living. And all I asked was that they release my own speech. And uh, they promised to get to work on clearing it for release. And three and a half months later, uh, we still don't have it in hand, and there's no real sign of it being imminently uh, cleared. Um, this is my own words being released to me, given in an unclassified setting um, to people who are, uh, you know, there was, there was, could not have been anything classified about it. Um, and so it seems to me, like jokes aside, it is a metaphor for the problems that that agency has talking in public about what they can and can't, you know, the things that they can and can't say, the dialogues that they can and can't have, you know, that they can invite somebody who's not part of their community to come talk to them and then have a months-long internal process about whether his uh, remarks can be released to him. Do they have, and have they given you any indication of what the process actually is? I mean, what, what could they possibly be doing? They're not vetting a manuscript. You're not a former employee. Maybe they're reading the Constitution for the first time. No, and, and to be and to be fair, um, I tried to make it easy for them by requesting only my part of the speech, none of the Q and A. I knew that would be uncomfortable, and I think legitimately so because people would introduce themselves by name, right. you know, and so you would have, um, you know, you had you would have I think legit <laughs> concerns there about identifying people, and also maybe about identifying what people are thinking about in relation to what I said, and that you could imagine some sensitivity there. But this is a speech that I have been, for example, asked recently to do in a different setting, to whatever you said, it, and I'm allowed to walk in. I didn't have notes when I gave it, so I, I actually couldn't walk in and give the same speech. But there's nothing that prevents me from doing it. Uh, and no, the answer is I have no idea. I assume there is just a very difficult bureaucratic process associated with getting anything cleared for release there. And that includes something that's from an outsider. Yeah. Wow, maybe you should FOIA your own speech. Well, I've been... Find out what you said. Uh, yeah. I've, I've, been, I've been thinking about it. <laughs> you know and, all the specifics. Um, yeah, I, I honestly uh, am curious to see how the process just plays out on its own. But I did think three and a half months later, uh, it was time to poke a little gentle fun at them about it. Well, I hope they're listening and that they speed up uh, the audio of your speech that you gave in an unclassified setting that <laughs> came out of your mouth. Wow. Okay. Um, Tamara, what is your object lesson? Okay. So my object lesson is also a, a bit of a metaphor, but it is a, a physical object. Uh, we'll post a photo of it on the website. It's about six inches high, and it's made of... Um, silver plate wire wrapped in the shape of a, a sprig of flowers. Uh, and it, it looks odd because it's silver and black, but the, the black beads at the top uh, that you will be able to see in the photo are actually real jasmine buds. Uh, and this silver-plated jasmine branch was a gift to me from the Tunisian government um, that I got while I was at the State Department. It was a gift from the interim government after the Tunisian Revolution in 2011. And I brought it with me today 
because something quite remarkable happened this past week in Tunisia, something that I think uh, a lot of cynics never expected, even after the revolution took place, uh, which was a peaceful transfer of power from uh, the ruling party to the opposition party, or rather from a member of the ruling coalition to uh, the victorious presidential candidate from the opposition. Uh, uh, President Mansouf Marzouki turned over power on January 1st uh, to Kaida Sebsi, uh, who's the new president of Tunisia. And this, um, typically for us scholars who work on democracy, marks the successful consolidation of a democratic transition. Now, I don't know. I think there are still a lot of questions about the evolution of Tunisia's democracy, but there's no question that January 1st represented an incredible milestone, an incredible achievement, and something that is basically unheard of in the Arab world, with very, very few exceptions, uh, and worth noting and savoring. And what I love about this little silver-plated sprig is um, that these real jasmine berries, three years later, still smell just faintly of jasmine, yeah. which you can you can verify. I can attest they do, actually. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and uh, that means that the sweet scent of uh, Arab democratic dreams has not faded entirely. It, go ahead. Uh, so I was just wanted, in light of the very dark picture that you painted of Egypt before, uh, and in light of those faint sweet smells still persisting, uh, with respect to Tunisia, just your thoughts on the difference and what, why is it that the mm -hmm. Arab Spring still has jasmine blossoms in one country and is such a nightmare in another? Uh, okay, two quick reasons. The first is in Tunisia, restraint on the part of the victorious party in the first elections, the Muslim Brotherhood-linked Nahda party, restrained itself from governing in a majoritarian way uh, restrained itself from pushing its own uh, party platform, its Islamist preferences in the constitution writing process, and voluntarily stepped down from power to allow for early elections when the polarization there became intense. Um, the other reason, on the other side, uh, is that Egypt uh, had a strong military uh, behind the throne before the revolution and after the revolution and after the first elected president took power, and that military decided to overthrow that elected president after he had been in office for barely a year. Tunisia, the military was never very strong. Uh, ben Ali, the dictator there, uh, empowered the police that he had emerged from, and the military was always kept weak. And so there was never really that option in Tunisia. Okay, so my object lesson uh, is not physically something I could bring in here, um, because I do not own an IGR-933 rotating equipment isolation device. Oh, you're making me all hot and sweaty know, just right? saying that. Here's a picture of it. Aren't you <laughs> jealous? I wish I owned one. What does it do, Shane? Well, this looks like it looks like a microwave oven from like 1972 that my grandmother had. But basically what this is is a piece of equipment that you can put into a rotating machine, i.e. an electrical power generator or a motor or a pump, uh, to stop a particular kind of cyber attack that theoretically could cause that rotator to spin out of control. And you guys may remember this some years ago, 
there was something called the Aurora attack that occurred. You probably saw the video on CNN. There was this sort of big hulking green generator that starts shaking on the camera and it starts spitting smoke and it looks very dramatic. And this was apparently, was reportedly a test that was done by one of the national laboratories, I think in co- coordination with the Homeland Security Department, to show how a hacker could get in and cause this level of damage. There's still some controversy over whether, around whether that is true, how vulnerable are these systems, how hard are they actually to hack. But what I thought was so interesting is apparently uh, this object, uh, it's reported, and I independently have it on good authority from someone who would know, uh, many of these boxes, these IGR 933s, were bought up by the Pentagon, uh, and DOD is willing to give them away for free to electrical power companies if they want to install them to protect against this horrible attack. But reportedly, and I'm quoting here from an article in Defense One that wrote about this recently, um, electrical companies have not installed any of them, even though they're free, because if they did that, they would essentially, the utility would become a piece of critical facility or critical infrastructure if they, or at least they think, if they were to take this protective equipment from the government, which would then open them up to audits by a regulatory body. So can't the, have that. Can't have that. Can't have that. So having just uh, written a book on cybersecurity and cyber attacks, I just found it uh, very puzzling that this, you know, little piece of meter equipment is out there that the Pentagon has bought them. And the person I talked to about this said they are basically sitting in warehouses. Uh, was this person's understanding, and no one is installing them. Well, maybe we should ask for one as a yes. physical object for our next, you know, so that we can have one here. And and the podcast can be a part of our national critical infrastructure. Absolutely. Right. Which it is. Absolutely. It just needs to be recognized. It clearly so. is, and it's, and it's going to be after episode one comes out. Um, so, Defense Department, if you are listening... Um, please send me an IGR-933. You can find my contact information uh, on our Twitter feed at RATL Security. That's Rational Security. Um, and that brings us to the end of our first episode. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. I'm Shane Harris, and uh, I want to thank my friends Tamara Kaufman-Wittis and Ben Wittis uh, for being here, and we will talk to you again next week. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusive Exclusions apply. See site for details.